Hi, everyone. We have a special episode today featuring a special guest host, Jody Interfield. You may recognize Jody's name because she was a guest on the NBA Insider podcast on episode 106, where she talked about her transition into post MBA life. Jody is a near and dear friend of mine and a former colleague of mine from Salesforce and someone who knows a thing or two about career development, leadership, and management. Jody interviews her fellow Ross MBA alum classmate, Ryan Bouchard. I love the ability to have other people get a chance to interview really smart and thoughtful MBAs. And I can't think of someone better than to hand the mic over to Jody to go and do just that. I really hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you look forward to some other guest hosts in the future. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Jody Interfield, and today I am guest hosting today's podcast. I'm a current product marketer and a Michigan Ross MBA alum, and today I am joined by my friend Ryan Bouchard, who, like me, is a Michigan Ross MBA alum as well. Go Blue! Ryan is also a U.S. Army veteran and a current, currently a principal program manager at Microsoft, where he's been since graduation from his MBA. I'm particularly excited today to talk to Ryan about his transition from the military into a career in data science. And since he's someone I go to with questions on managing a team, I'm looking forward to having him share how he thinks about leadership and continuous learning. Thank you so much for joining, Ryan. So I'm going to, in true Al spirit, start with a warm-up question, just something fun to get stuff going. Since you were... Michigan at Michigan twice as an undergrad and a grad student. You've been to quite a few Michigan football games. So what's your favorite Michigan football memory? I grew up in Ann Arbor, close enough to hear the marching band practice during the week and hear the crimes on Saturday and then went to high school across the street from Michigan Stadium. So I've been to- You bleed maize and blue. Yeah. So I was there in 2005 when Mario Manningham caught uh, touchdown against Penn State as time expired. But I also had the opportunity to go to the game this year against Ohio State, and that had a special kind of energy. It was a cool experience to be a part of that. That's a really almost once in a lifetime. Hopefully not, though. Hopefully we get to do that. We beat Ohio State in case anybody was not following Michigan football for that. So, Ryan, you told us a little, you just said you mentioned you grew up in Ann Arbor, but why don't you take us a little bit back before business school. Tell us what a little bit more about what you did before business school and how what brought you to business school and decide how you decided to get an MBA. Yeah, so I was an infantry and intelligence officer in the Army, and I served in the 10th Mountain Division and 2nd Ranger. During my time, I had the opportunity to have a few different roles in the Army. This included being a scout platoon leader. When we were in Afghanistan, I was essentially a beat cop in an area north of Kandahar. So that included being responsible for security in a certain area, but getting to know all the local farmers and personalities as we were providing security in that area. I was an executive officer, which included the logistics of keeping uh, 
group of 150 soldiers um, maintained with the food, fuel, and equipment that they needed to do military operations, had the opportunity to train Afghan soldiers and lead a team of intelligence specialists. But I was uh, a little burned out and had accomplished a lot of my initial goals in the army. And so I was actually coming off my fourth deployment in Afghanistan um, the summer before business school. So I got back in July and then three weeks later was in Ann Arbor with orientation. Wow. And I know you bleed maize and blue, so Ann Arbor and Michigan felt like a natural choice. But other than it being in Ann Arbor and being your home, what made Michigan the place for you to get your MBA? So I knew I wanted to do a career pivot, but I didn't know into quite what yet. And one of the benefits that was comforting to me at the University of Michigan was that it's a great business school, but also had a lot of other programs if I wanted to pursue a dual degree or just take classes in another department, whether that was public policy, school of engineering, public health, all top ranked programs that would help supplement, I think, someone going through an MBA experience. Mm -hmm. And so once you were there, how did you make, you're now in data science and in tech. Was that something that was on your radar before you got to business school? Or is that something that you explored once you were there? More explored once I was there and uh, talking with some people in admissions at business school, they kind of remind people that, hey, no one comes to you at graduation and, and says, hey, your admission letter of the thing that you wanted to do, this is not the job or career field that you're going into. What was your, what did you write your essay about? I, I don't even remember. My, uh, mine was about HR consulting and I am definitely not, I did not stay in HR and nowhere near consulting. So I'm glad they didn't come back to me with that. Yeah. And I guess to say it's great if you are laser focused and, and come in with more of a sense of purpose, but I did want to go through that exploration process, especially my first year in the MBA program. And I do have to actually interject an apology to some of our, our former classmates of uh -oh. Britt Hassenkamp and Allison Holmgren because I distinctly remember an operations case competition that we did. And Brent just casually mentions that we've got this data set in Excel. And he's like, hey, throw it in a pivot table and, and find X. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, we were no pivot tables in the military? No, not a whole lot of, of deep Excel functionality in the infantry. And so yeah, that was my start. But from there, got more experience in, in hands-on doing things like SQL, Python, and R, going into my summer internship, and then obviously into my full-time job. So yeah, your full-time job, which is at Microsoft. So what you're saying is you didn't know what a pivot table was and then made it to a role in Microsoft. So tell me about that that learning and that transition of coming into Microsoft and where, I mean, you obviously learned some of that at business school, but tell me a little bit more about that transition to Microsoft. Yeah, I'll, I'll preface that by saying, if I can do it, it's, do it, do it. <laughs> it's stating the level that I was starting off in, in September prior to my internship, because there are a lot of free or low cost resources out there, but it requires that time investment. And I think there's a lot going on, obviously, your first year, but trying to evaluate how do I get the most out of the classes or opportunities from the business school program itself, mm -hmm. but how much should I be supplementing that with 
either other industry curriculum or, or learning that's out there as well. So and for me, yeah, that's how I was trying to balance the skills that I was immediately getting from the program, but also mm -hmm. leveraging some external things to Coursera or Data Camp as well. And so once you got to Microsoft, what was it like being there, not having had prior tech experience? So I would say now that I'm there and have gone through interview process with other people that no one has zero tech experience. Okay. You've probably used a computer or an iPad, looked up directions on your phone, made a list in Excel or made a decision matrix in Excel. And so even if you haven't coded up an app yourself, mm -hmm. um, you've interacted with, with big tech products. And what I have learned is that there is is it really a substitute for going through that experience yourself? And I would recommend this for people that are preparing for an interview or casually looking around. It's like, hey, you should go through, sign up for that trial, try to create that that hello world experience through their documentation. And worst case, you have a more interesting conversation in that interview or that peer yeah. at that company. And best case is you can take some notes and, and pass it on to the engineering or content team to say, this is where I got stuck, or this is the things that were not clear to me, because other people are probably getting stuck there too. Yeah, people often ask me, like, how do I break into tech? I don't have tech experience. And I agree with you, like, A, you don't, you've interacted with tech, we've used it, it's so ubiquitous in our lives. But I think the other thing that I'm wondering if this was true for you is, we often live in a bubble when you've been in tech for so long, or you've been at a company for so long, you live in a bubble thinking, well, all the users are like me and have this level of expertise or this level of knowledge. So I would imagine coming in from with an outside perspective was also something that was valuable and gave you an edge. Is that something that you found? Yeah, it goes, I think, to the fundamental framework of what questions are you potentially trying to answer with data or statistics? And so some things I was able to leverage from my time in the intelligence community is to build out that framework and essentially have some refutable hypotheses or help mm -hmm. craft those. In the intelligence rules, you're helping develop those hypotheses, but also trying to answer them for the leadership team. I'll give you an example. Afghanistan, we might want to know if a certain village has a good clean source of water or if the roads can support heavy military vehicles. And there are a number of ways, of, okay, how might I answer that question? Mm -hmm. I could look up some past reports I could go potentially fly a drone over that area to visually inspect it. We could use some human intelligence to try to see if they could verify for us. And it actually starts from that question of like, how, what data do I wish I had? Mm -hmm. As opposed to maybe some blinders on thinking of, I got asked a question, I go to the database and I try to answer it. Taking a step back, say, what, what data do I wish I had? And so that's one of the things I get joy out of my current role is not only leveraging the available data we have, but getting the uh, kind of authority to ask the question of, do we need to do some other research, do more customer interviews? Because ultimately the leadership team is trying to make, not just have the numeric answer, but that mm -hmm. decision of, are we getting enough ROI out of this program to justify further investment? Do we need to change our marketing campaigns to, to match the direction of them? But also interested in how, how yeah, your experience has been at Salesforce and before. Yeah, I think you make a really good observation that like the things you don't have to have always been in the same industry or line of business. It's the way you think about problems or the way you approach problems that 
makes you stand out or that helps you move forward. And so I think I was not in the military, but I was in film production, which is pretty different from the stuff that I'm doing today. But I learned some key things there being a production assistant that I do find really helped me today. Things, soft skills, like anticipating people's needs, like not waiting around for someone to tell you what they need you to do, but just being able to pick up on cues, seeing what's happening and saying, okay, I know that seven steps ahead from here, someone is going to need this. So let me go and start getting that moving so that we're not waiting an hour for this to, to happen. Or something as simple as my first boss always wanted to have, she would only drink Earl Grey tea and have 70% dark chocolate. And this was at a time when the, when 70% fair trade organic dark chocolate wasn't like a thing. And so I was just like, all right, I'm going to make sure I always have that in my backpack so that wherever we are, when she sees Lipton, instead of her having a fit, I could be like, nope, here you go. We're all gray. So something simple like anticipating people's needs. I obviously am not getting anybody tea or chocolate anymore in my career, but I can do things similar when I see my EVP in a meeting and there's a conversation happening. I could say, oh, she's going to need this information to prepare her for her next meeting with the CMO. Let me make sure I have that so that she's not asking for it. I think so important uh, knowing that you might be asked to answer that initial set of questions, but once you come back with an answer, trying to anticipate that next level that they're going to want to click into and anticipate that, potentially have it ready. But yeah. your, your comment on the soft skills kind of reminds me of this other experience I had on a deployment and helping lead a, a small intelligence team. And we had this one guy, contractors augmenting our, our work, we'll call him John. And initially first impressions were not the best. And my boss okay. actually wanted to fire him. He was a complete slouch in our meetings, very hard to talk with one-on-one, -on -one, very non-committal verbally. But what I learned was that his reporting was gold over mm -hmm. written communication. And just understanding that, you know what, I need to meet him where he can do his best work. And that was providing guidance, asking clarifying questions, more so over email than in a face-to-face -face meeting. Mm. And it, it was really beneficial to have him on the team and just figuring out that aspect of how can we work together more effectively in, in a way that's more compatible with his style. Yeah, so you led very large groups of people in the military, right? How many, how many people were on a platoon under you in the military? Uh, so anywhere between 20 and 40 people. Yeah, not small. And then when you started at Microsoft, you were an individual contributor, but then have grown into a management role. So how did you make that transition to management at Microsoft? And what are some similarities or differences that you noticed from your military experience? Yeah. So, I mean, almost immediately after starting full-time, I was looking for opportunities of what I'd call kind of like lightweight management mm -hmm. experiences. So this could be managing that summer intern, or we had MBA consulting programs going on throughout the year. We have contractors that might be helping supplement and support some of our projects. And what I was really looking for are not just opportunities to say, hey, I'm involved in what they're mm -hmm. doing, but how can you help either scope that project for those people? How can you help ensure their success? And how can you put yourself in a role where you're modeling the behavior uh, that you want to see from them, helping provide that actual coaching? So those were the opportunities that I 
sawn out in the first two or three years that I think gave me some reps and confidence in the eyes of my leadership team that yeah. when the opportunity came up. So Ryan's kind of demonstrated this in other lightweight ways. And do you notice any differences? I mean, leadership is a soft skill, but are there any differences in leading and managing in civilian life, I'll call it, versus in the military? Yeah, I, I think one of the key things that common in many management books is that there's not one best style. It's what's the style for the people of your team, the situation, and how well are you able to adapt? But there is one concept that I have found to be helpful in these situations where maybe you're managing people that are better at you in certain areas and Mm -hmm. have more experience. So I, I am interested if you run into that situation as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think that's the joy of managing when the people on your team know more or can do more than you ever could have because that's that means that there's a multiplier effect if they have the right attitude. I think there's two different sides to it. I think if someone, if you're managing someone and they're better than you because you're not competent, that's a problem. But if you're managing people and, for example, I'm now leading a team where I'm not intimately familiar with the work that my team is doing. I inherited this team when I came over to a new role. They've been doing these jobs for a number of years and I know tangentially what they've done because I worked with them, but they're the experts here and I really look to them for what do you think should should happen and I can give some guidance, but they know the ins and outs and I don't. And I love that. I love that they can see things that I can't and it's my job just to make sure I'm unblocking them that I'm supporting them, that I'm a sounding board for them when they do have questions. and But it's not my job to be able to do their jobs, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I just juxtapose that with essentially my first job in the Army as a platoon leader, put in charge of this group of, of 20 soldiers that were just coming back from a deployment. And so out of this group, I'm the only one who hasn't gone. Never been. Wow. And now I'm I'm in charge. And yeah. How did they like? Were they like, oh God, this kid? Rightfully so. Yeah. Totally. Uh, Totally. And and the platoon sergeant, the right hand person, had typically has anywhere from eight to twelve years of experience, and the platoon leader is now in charge of that person. Wow. And these are the situations that you know can be a little contentious, and so. Some things that I've learned that kind of cut through a series of three questions and you just apply them to certain situations, which is, all right, what decisions do you make? What decisions do I make? And what decisions do we make together? I love that. And so if you are taking over, let's say a marketing team and they go through their budget cycle of how to fund certain campaigns and now you're coming in and you're leading that and they're questioning why why is Ryan or why is Jody now in charge of defining that and use those three questions with, let's say that person that's been on the team for five years, that you can kind of get to the heart of really, do you have the trust that they can help make those decisions? Or you could, you can delegate that completely to them. Or are you in a position that they're not aware of that you're trying to balance it with some other factors that are not part of their immediate? But yeah, if you ask Hey, I love that. Think, yeah, a decision that you make is it a decision that I make, or a decision we make together? together. I'm gonna find a notebook and write that down. I love that. I think that helps build so much trust, and that's often when you're inheriting a team, is the hardest and also most important thing is to just is to to build trust. But also, I'm curious 
it brings to mind, I remember when I did take on this team, I asked advice. What advice do you have from a, I asked a former manager, what advice do you have for me taking on this team? What advice do you give to others or what advice were you given as you stepped into leadership at Microsoft that has helped you? Yeah. So one exercise that I went through recently with my new team was around the type of identity that we wanted to have. Hmm. Found this in the army and it's, I think, true in corporate America that once you, you do have a team that's potentially just a few people, like you will have a brand, you will have a reputation, yeah. uh, whether you like it or not. And so to say, hey, what are the the potentially three or four core things that we want to be known for? And then how do we take charge of that reputation? What are the things that we should try to demonstrate and what we do? If, when it comes to specifically data science or analytics, being trustworthy, mm-hmm. credible is something that for our team was really important that we wanted to make sure if we were going to publish an analysis or come forward with a recommendation based off of data that we wouldn't have to backtrack on that. And knowing that it, there's the potential to have to correct something if there's a data quality issue mm-hmm. or if someone makes a human error in developing a query or doing a calculation. And so we had this conversation, well, how do we make sure that we uphold that? What are the checks uh, and code reviews within the team that we're going to do before analysis is shared? What's the peer reviews that we're going to do to make sure it passes the sniff test before we, we share it with other people? Um, but first aligning on what are the yeah. core concepts of our reputation was a good team building exercise. I love that. Your, your core values. We do that at Salesforce. We have our V2 mom vision values, methods, obstacles, and measures. And that's kind of the planning for the year. And each team says, okay, we first start with what values do we as a team, what four or five values do we abide by? And then everything we do, should we make sure we have those values in mind, which does essentially ladder up to what's our brand? How do we want to be seen? So Ryan, we talked a lot about this transition to management, but I know that in addition to transitioning to management, you've also Wally at Microsoft changed jobs, you've changed managers, and you've moved from Seattle back to where else but Ann Arbor. How have you navigated these career changes? And is this kind of, do you, did you expect this, this type of, ch- all these changes when you were first signing up for my, Microsoft in Seattle? Back? I didn't have, obviously, the appreciation or, or depth of understanding that I do now, but one of the things I heard when I was in business school is that, oh, tech moves fast. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like I understand they're making a, if they're making a software product, that's probably easier to change than let's say in the automotive industry of like right. correcting a physical thing that has a, a million components. But what that has actually played out to me on a day-to-day or quarter-to-quarter level has been Microsoft and you know, other tech companies will move divisions. We talk about synergies <laughs> and it's okay. You have Cortana, our, our AI voice assistant. Should that be with our Windows team? Should that be with our Xbox team? Should it be with our Azure cloud compute team so it can plug into different layers? In the leadership team is going through those decisions at a high level like that and in smaller levels. And so you get these shifts from time to time and opportunities pop up. Yep. And so I believe it's best to make sure that you have maybe a, a six or 12 month roadmap of the type of experiences that you want to have or the type of 
teams or people you want to work with, but being flexible that things are going to change and yeah. uh, opportunities can come up along the way. And how many changes is this for you? The biggest change, this is the, the first time I jumped between two different divisions, mm -hmm. but the biggest change that I went through was I joined a team that was maturing a large, along with our cloud platform. Mm -hmm. So when I joined our customer growth analytics group, we were about 12 people. And I looked back and our cloud revenue was $25 billion a year in, in 2016. Over the next three years, we grew to a team of over 70. Wow. And this past year, Microsoft reported intelligent cloud revenue of over $60 billion. So for us, we grew out of doing rhythm of business reporting mm -hmm. to, to projects that required more statistical analysis, predictive modeling. And so I was being put in a position where we asked to have more skills and I was able to develop along with kind of the requirements of the team up until recently when I changed it to a new role in our developer division. Awesome. And the other change I know you made uh, before it was the thing to do was leaving headquarters and leave and moving from Seattle to Ann Arbor pre-pandemic. Uh, I did the same thing, leaving San Francisco, come back to New York, but leaving headquarters is hard. What was that decision like for you and did it impact your career again pre-pandemic or how did that even shift after working from anywhere became the norm? Yeah, I, I think Everyone has learned a ton of what can still be effective being completely remote and what things do they miss or, or team bonds. I think that's mm -hmm. been really hard to recreate or start from scratch in a completely remote environment. So from that standpoint, I would say for any you know, upcoming graduate, I hope we're in a position where more people are in the office soon and you should want to be a part of that. That being said, I was able to make a move in, and my leadership team told me it was because I had a proven track record. They, they said, hey, you have shown that you're, you, you can do this job. And if you are someone that's only been with the team for a month, maybe we'd be more hesitant before saying, yeah, move across the country. But I had luckily built up uh, a good enough rapport and cashed in all of my social capital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience where I was in headquarters in San Francisco for, I think, two and a half years before I moved. And I moved about a month and a half before the pandemic. But similarly, it was like, oh, this might chain. A, I'm really glad that I did start at HQ. So I built those relationships, built in that FaceTime, especially pre-pandemic when everything was FaceTime, because I think it does shift what you're pulled into. And I think, again, right in this moment in January 2022, when we're still all working remotely, it's less important where you work. But I think hopefully things are starting to shift and people will be in the office part of the time. And I do agree with you that starting out by building those relationships where you are is really important and building your reputation, probably more importantly. And then once you've got that trust, then yeah, you can go anywhere. But I do see we have uh, interns, like interns, from MBA interns from over the summer who obviously were working remotely that now got their offers and they still want to be remote. And we're allowing it for sure. But I think if you have people who are going to be back in the office, it's definitely going to be a different dynamic for those who are near an office and can be in an office. I, 
I, I hope things return to some sense of maybe not normalcy, but we have more balance or luxury to make that decision. The other just ancillary benefits of being kind of face to face. I was catching up with some people over the phone this past week. And I was like, oh, this probably would have been a conversation we would have had a, a happy hour or something. Yep. Like that. Calendar it's- wouldn't be back to back 30 minute meetings anymore. But those type of engagements are something that I've, I've really kind of missed over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, of just catching up with people in more of a lightweight environment. Yeah. I don't know. I definitely go both ways where I'm really grateful that everything we now know how to work so well remotely because I am not going back to San Francisco, right? I will always be in New York. And so putting that stake in the ground. But that being said, I do really, really miss those relationships. And I hope I hope I can at least go back to traveling to be at HQ uh, more than I have been because it's been two years since I've done that. It's insane. It's insane. Ryan, I want to wrap with going back to tying it all back to business school because this is an MBA podcast. I think often there are people fall into two camps. Either they're like, yep, I use stuff I learned in business school all the time. Or they're like, no, I I can't even tell you what I've used in business school in the last year. I think I know what camp you fall into. So what is, so I'm just going to ask, what's one thing you learned in business school that you use all the time? So and this might be uh, good news to your ears, but the, the marketing aspects. Uh, I love it. Even in a role in engineering or data science, I have found that at especially large organizations, those have been really helpful and powerful. Even yesterday, I was helping my team define what's our value proposition statement Mm. for this kind of internal process and tool that we're coming up with and helping them define that if we are not crisp here, if people don't hear the phrase of, of what we're branding this internally and they don't immediately understand what the value is that we're trying to bring. It's just not going to be that clear. We're not always going to have the luxury or opportunity to have a meeting to explain it or the white paper to explain all the details. And it helped us define after that value proposition statement of what are we actually going to try to achieve this quarter. So yeah, I return to that That for something internal. That warms my marketing heart. I wish more people had that attitude. Brand things right, inter- even when they're internal. I love yeah, that. What have you found? I think the thing I want to say is just everything from management of organizations and just thinking about it's not the work you do, it's how you get it done and it's how you make people feel. And that, not that I didn't know that before business school, but I think to going back to something that you said earlier around like the frameworks and the, th- like business school gives you the frameworks and the the theories behind things and just gives you the language (laughs) to use. And so I think with M&O, Maxim Sitch, great professor, if you're at, I think he's, yeah, he's still at Ross. Yeah. I was like, that's how I know he's still at Ross because I know you've, you've mentioned seeing him. I think a lot about how teams work, how to motivate teams. And then I will never forget, and then just use this yesterday, that's, I think it was, there was a simulation we did where you have to get to know people in the office and I'm going to spoiler alert if you do this simulation, but the way to win is to befriend the executive assistant. And let me tell you just this, like I had to move in a, a meeting with some, a couple of very important people and 
building those, I had built up those relationships with the EAs. These are wonderful people. And that's how you get things done. Yeah. I joined the team <laughs> within the last month and a half and I've figured out who that person was and they were like the top of my list. Yep. Yep. Just to get the backstory of how to work effectively. And um, yeah, knowing exactly knowing who to get the information from and who to build relationships, like building those relationships and building those trusted relationships. And the other thing I said recently was like, the work isn't that hard. It's the people aspect of work that's hard. Like that. And I think that's, I'm sure Maxim said, she'd be like, yeah, that's why I have a job. Um, anyway, Ryan, always a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so glad that you were able to join. I'm so glad you're able to share your wisdom with the MBA Insider listeners. So thanks for spending some time with me today. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. You too. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.